1: a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show.
0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 106th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is High Wages, the Engine of Economic Growth and Well Being. I'm joined by Morris Altman, the author of Worker Satisfaction and Economic Performance, which is in its third edition. The publisher is Rutledge. Morris has published over 130 refereed papers, 17 previous books, and he has had academic positions at a variety of uh, institutions and countries for that matter from the University of Saskatchewan to post in uh, New Zealand, Australia. He's been at Stanford, Cornell, Duke, and Hebrew University. He is now the Dean of the University of Dundee's School of Business. Welcome to the show, Morris. Thanks a lot, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Great. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Well, a very brief overview of the book is that I found that there are
1: serious gaps in economic theory, which play, plays a huge role in informing policy, even when there's no av- evidence to back up what uh, a lot of economists tend to say. So what I try to do is, is to correct for that gap and that error in economic theory. So th- this book, in a nutshell, is all about demonstrating, based on the evidence, Using robust economic theory that increasing wages, improving the well-being of workers, can will will not cause harm to the economy and to the firms. In other words, firms can remain competitive and profitable while increasing wages and benefits to workers. it's it's, it's, it's more of a it's a dynamic type of model, it's a dynamic type of process, but basically this flies in the face of what you hear said by by many economists that if you increase wages, you increase minimum wages, you have unions or so increase in the bargaining power of workers, what's going to happen? Well, wages go up, costs go up, profits go down. There'll be a huge disaster. So the best thing to do is to let firms do their own thing, including cut, cutting wages, shifting production to China and God knows where else. And eventually, eventually workers will benefit. Historically, that's not how things work and how things have not worked and uh, and basically the book follows some of the wisdom of the great Adam Smith that if when wages go up workers benefits increase productivity goes up efficiency increases and everyone can benefit from this
0: well, I have a lot of interest in Adam Smith, so we're going we're gonna to definitely go there. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, so the book was originally published, I guess, the first edition in the late 90s, then 2001, and then a 20-year gap. So uh, you talked about the gap in terms of how economics and wages and so forth is looked at by economists, but there's also a gap in the publishing history. I, I'm, I, I think the book's hugely relevant to today's arguments. Uh, but I'm curious, why now did you bring the book back? Well, be,
1: because a lot of the same arguments, the same debates, the same uh, challenges remain. Because if you, not only in the West but in the developing world, I think advise, advisors are dominated by the same type of uh, ideas. That they get from Harvard, MIT, Oxford, Cambridge, and all all over the place around the world, that if you want to move forward, the i the way to move forward is to keep labor markets very flexible, and and to do one's best to keep wages for real wages uh, from from growing, uh, keep benefits from from moving forward, because that's, that's the main instrument for, for pursuing economic growth. It's the way to increase savings, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the same type of challenge. And, and I, what, what I hope is that when people are exposed to this different type of mental model, which is more reality-based, then this will allow for a shift in the way policymakers think and politicians think. So we can we can actually move forward in a more uh, dynamic type of ca- a sustainable and dynamic type of capitalism, because right now capitalism, which I think is the best instrument to move forward, is in trouble because a lot of people are really upset. Working people upset, uh, middle class people, small businesses, these people are really upset and and. They buy into the myth that the best way to resolve the problems of the world is basically to kick out the immigrants, to stop immigration, and that'll, and everybody will be ha- happy. Or Putin's solution is just conquer some other countries and take their wealth and kill a whole bunch of people, and whoopee-doo, everything will work. There's a, there is a better way, and capitalism can work if it's thought through more carefully and one introduces light forms of regulation into the market.
0: Okay, well, I've loved what you just said because I I think that's why the book is indeed uh, so relevant today. I mean, first of all, in in the U.S., the the minimum wage hasn't budged in, you know, what, 15 years or something? That's right. It's at a a level that can't possibly allow those workers to buy housing, uh, for instance, in major cities. And then we have the great resignation as all sorts of people – Basically bailed out of their current job saying I'm not being really treated like I'm essential. Uh you write the Ukrainian conflict, war, not a special operation, right? Uh, right. brings these questions of freedom and uh, respect for human decency right back into the fold. Um so I I just think your your timing for the book is is inadvertently or not tremendous, because I think these issues are very much with us in the question of what kind of capitalism we want uh is is front and center so let, let's go back to the 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 founder or sometimes he's referred to as the founder or the father of capitalism that would be adam smith um obviously there's two books there the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations uh the latter being the more famous of the two but, to me, the first one is is awfully important in terms of who Adam Smith is and what his value system was. Can you talk about the the legacy of Smith? And maybe how it's misunderstood or the moral sentiments book is perhaps overlooked at times?
1: Sure. well, first of all, I think Adam Smith is full of co- he's a man full of contradictions and is, as as are his books if you if you go through them. but I think one of, uh, Adam Smith's worldview, I think, is that capitalism. Is not will not be a, a viable entity unless it's characterized by what he refers to as moral sentiments. So basically people need empathy and sympathy for others. If they have that, then the then the, the economy and society will be prosperous for all. And at the at the same time, he, he argues that if you if you don 't have this is a, he contradicts himself, but basically if you don 't have moral sentiment and sympathy and labor markets are tight that 's why he loved what I guess some people would call globalization more and more trade if if there 's more and more demand for for workers because of products imported from the the u k Scotland England, and Wales at that time, then labor markets get tight and it's, it increases the bargaining power of workers and their wages will go up. And that's compensated by more and more efficiency from workers. So there's two sides to Adam Smith. He believed in the market. And at some points in his book, he said, well, free markets, everything will be fine. But at other points, he, he argues that if, if capitalism, if capitalists and also others don't have that notion of sympathy and moral sentiment, then things will not work well for society as a whole.
0: Yeah, no, I, I thought the, the – the, yeah, all contradictions aside, there was a, a moral, empathetic component to to uh, Smith that I, I think gets overlooked at times. It's not just back it, off and, and let happen what's going to happen and it could be a bloodbath for for workers who just get exploited and I, I thought smith was coming from a fairly different right. place actually um <laughs> I so I, i'm curious I'm, I'm curious for your your vantage point on you know there's been a lot of hullabaloo about moving from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism what's your view how, how, to what extent do you think that 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 movement that rhetoric from the business roundtable is is genuine uh and will prove its metal over time Well, it it depends what one
1: means by shareholder versus stakeholder. I've done a lot of work on employee-owned firms. So this is type of a stakeholder capitalism or or co-ops, multi-stakeholder cooperatives that are owned by workers, by consumers, and by the larger community. We know from the evidence that those type of co-ops work. And they can be very efficient and they can be very productive and they can be sustainable when people are treated decently or at least half dec- decently. So stakeholder capitalism, if that means that actually uh, everybody's empowered, including workers, they truly have a say in how the firm works, well, that can, that can improve the well-being of workers. It's not going to damage the well-being of capitalists. So it's workable. But the question is, is, is the rhetoric really matched reality of what a lot of CEOs want to do? My sense for what we can see from the United States, Canada, Britain, is that a lot of capitalists, that's probably a horrible term, a lot of these individuals who own businesses, it's it's a lot, a lot of it, a lot of this is talk is a lot of it is rhetoric. And I'm not seeing that rhetoric being implemented. Therefore, I think the institutions that we have need reform. Things are—we just just can't leave things to the free market. I think you need more information to workers and to capitalists as to the viability of a higher wage economy. But you also need institutions that provide that strengthen the ability of workers to improve their position, to improve their bargaining power. And also the bargaining power of smaller firms, small medium-sized enterprises. So That also goes to the notion of cooperatives, because there's also these small companies that need to survive, and they have weak bargaining power, and they get very often crushed by the bigger companies that end up making more profits, and it disincentivizes the smaller firms, which are the, the, the largest driver of employment in most Western capitalist yes.
0: economies. Yeah, no, I've been seeing the statistics on how little the antitrust laws have, uh, you know, been enacted or or put to use in, you know, it's been really a precipitous decline over the last 20 years. Um, It's hard not to chart that vis-a-vis how much the politicians need, at least in America, to get reelected and who who they're going to turn to. I I was also interested in your comment on, on cooperatives because I'm from North Dakota by family background. It's the only place in the U.S. that has a state bank. And a state grain mill still, uh, both uh, legacies of the nonpartisan League of North Dakota, which was an attempt to correct some inequities going on in that market for farmers. Um, So, one of the things I think was interesting from what you just said is uh, earlier you mentioned immigration. So, both in in uh, Great Britain with uh, dropping out of the, uh, you know standing arrangement with the continent in Europe and with Trump here in the US. I just saw that one of the drivers for for um you know the everyone scrambling to find workers is that immigration in the US uh, starting about twenty sixteen has dropped by approximately four fifths. Um you know right. some people are talking now that uh with uh, Russia kind of getting in some measure, kicked out of the world economy, that we might have deglobalization. Uh, what kind of vantage point do you have on that, if you don't mind?
1: Well, well, first, the, 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 the anti-immigration, the popularity of the anti-immigration rhetoric and p- public policy. I think part of that is because, let's say, in the United States, I, I'm not American; I'm Canadian, <laughs> now living in the UK. But I, I think a, what's happened in a lot of uh, modern capitalist economies is the the needs and the well-being of working people have been pretty much ignored by democrats as well as republicans so agreed so you have people who who are their lives are destroyed and and there's immigration so it's easy to blame the immigrant but if but very few people are saying in in the in the coal towns, in the steel towns, and the places where, where automobiles were produced, and all these domains throughout the United States, and even in Canada, well, no, nobody, people are talking about a whole bunch of important topics, environment, about gender, this, that, and the other, and about race, all of which are important, but people are forgetting about the basic needs of working people throughout the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain, and that is really—I could use a bunch of swear words—but that's really upsetting. These are not crazy people; these working people—they're—they're they're really upset, and uh, so they're looking for a solution. And if they don't have, if they get, they, they're loaded with false information, and such as what Putin's providing to to the Russians or Trump provided to the American people. Say, okay, let's try, let's try this way because. The Democrats haven't helped us, uh, Republicans. Before, well, let's try Trump. In in the UK, they went to Boris Johnson, blaming everything on Europe, and now the economy is even worse than before. But a lot of workers, a lot of former Labour Party supporters, went to the Conservatives because Labour is only talking about politically correct stuff, and you know, actually the needs of the working people were ignored. So that's so it was an easy scapegoat. I don't think we're going to have deglobalization. I think Russia was only in some ways part of that global economy. It produced oil and gas and a lot of grains. So the, the, the question then is, in certain areas, we need to pay closer attention to with regards to who we trade with and who we rely on. You can't rely on tyrants. You can't re- rely on unstable regimes. We, if We want to play ball, we have to play ball with people. We, have, we need to bring people onto our team that we can trust and we rely on, so it's maybe a readjustment to globalization to that uh, division of labor you know Adam Smith's comparative advantage,
0: okay, yeah, no, in fact if I'm not mistaken, the Russian economy is only about the size of Spain's economy or maybe Italy's um so it's really important in certain sectors, as you mentioned grain and and you know energy supplies, but otherwise it's been. Fairly nominal uh, to date. So wh- one thing that I think I find fascinating is as I've watched the headlines unfold, is everyone's glee over seizing the yachts, etc. of the Russian oligarchs. But actually, we have a lot of oligarchs in the West. Uh, you know, Bezos just created a, a new yacht that's so big they they are going to have to dismantle a bridge, I believe, in the Netherlands to get it out of port. Um, so it seems to me that uh, there is a lot of issues about people who are getting. Their, their basic needs ignored, and a lot of people who are being given a very free hand. I guess what I'm bringing myself around to is a question, to what extent can we, because the Ukrainians are arguing that they are trying to help save the mantle of the West, um, and I think they really are trying to you know speak to democracy and to freedom of choice and something as opposed to tyrants. Um do we have democracy at all in the workplace? Do we have companies that have been successful in having a more democratic uh, workplace that you found in your studies?
1: Well, you know, d- democracy is a tricky business. We, I, I, I don't think it's an absolute term. We don't have perfect democracies. We don't, we, but, but what we have in the United States is better than what we have in Russia. Or what we have in, in in Canada is better than what you have in, in China, but in in the workplace, we can even take university campuses. You know, so that's a, that's a workplace. They're not completely democratic. And uh, you look at factories. Factories are run by bosses. So workers can have very very little input in the process of of production. And but you ha- you ha- you have some firms that have moved towards uh, a more cooperative way of running the firm still privately owned so you do have worker owned companies they're not many because it's very high risk so that's that's one thing but you do have well, i guess one example and he's not a perfect example is with regards if you compare costco to walmart costco has a much ha, has had in the past a much more collaborative perspective and cooperative perspective with regards to its workers in terms of payment in words of with regards to pay, uh, cooperation, trust as compared to Walmart, so and and Costco does very well. It's very profitable, and of course, Walmart is also doing well. it's profitable. So you have in a way this a high wage versus a low wage way of running a business. Now, both can be profitable, but you have examples of the more cooperative approach to running businesses and and they do work. But a lot of firms either don't believe they can work, and that flows from from the mental models they're exposed to from economists, mainly from economists. So changing that mental model is important. On the other hand, some of my research, a more more recent research, shows us some people people who run companies uh, would rather not take the high-wage road, even if it's completely profitable and economically viable, because this... Reduces their relative social and economic positioning in their firm in their society. So rel- relative standing can be really important. Oh, you know, the higher I am, the better, the better I feel. It's nothing to do with oh, my firm can be viable if I increase the wage rate by fifteen percent. So that relative positioning is important. Therefore, things are not going to happen automatically because if people like. Where they are. So as economists say, they're maximizing their utility. They're not going to change. So you do need that pressure. And I don't think it's, it's not the state forcing things necessarily. It's empowering people so that they can get what they want and then things can be organized at the firm level.
0: Yeah, well, I, I raise the question because one thing I constantly see in the business literature is everyone bemoaning the low employee engagement rates when they do the surveys. I don't remember the number offhand, but it's you know in, in the range of 20% or some such abysmal number. And, and every time I read it, I think, well, of course, because by and large, I'm pretty sure they feel unempowered. Well, and right. uh, at the same time, they can look at what uh, kind of money the CEO is pulling down And, uh, you know, we're both fans of behavioral economics and uh, we know, you know, there's the inequality bias or, and, you know, if if you feel like the game is unfair, (laughs) Uh, you you take punitive steps, even if it doesn't help you just because, you know, it. Basically, it pisses you off uh, that this is the situation.
1: Yeah, and you're you know exactly right. So you so fairness fairness is really important. Say in behavioral economics that fairness matters. That if you're unfair, people will retaliate to beat up on those people who are treating them or perceived to be treating them un, unfairly. But what's really interesting, and I this is one of the things I try to show in my book and other publications, is that firms that are unfair can also survive. It's not that if you're unfair, you're going to go bankrupt, which is what some behavior economists yeah. would like to say. Oh, you know, the, the bad, the bad men and women are just going to be wiped out because they can't be competitive. That's not true. Being mean, being nasty, being bad, you can, you can still survive in the market. You could do well. But the, what's really important is, is that if you're nice, being nice, that's also a viable alternative. Right. It's just that a lot of people aren't aware of that you go to business schools. You know, if you go to most business schools, nobody just about I won't say none, but almost no business schools teach about the cooperative model of doing business or co- employee ownership, co- um, consumer ownership in terms of banks, member ownership. It's just it, it gotten rid of. So if, if people aren't exposed as well as they should. People who get jobs and companies to, differ, to the alternative ways of doing things. And right now, the big conversation is about climate change, which is important. But what, what's missing from the equation, if you wish, is how all of this feeds back or loops back to the position of, of working people throughout our democracies. And because that's sort of a a missing link that a lot of people are saying, well, they they don't even contemplate how what they're doing, how they're thinking will impact the the vast majority of people in society and that how that in turn can loop back in in a democratic country into the election of tyrants potentially.
0: Yeah, no, this is all exactly why I wanted you on the show, because I think these are hugely important issues that get overlooked way too often. And I'm looking at the events in the Ukraine or in Ukraine, and I'm thinking, you know, there's so many threads to follow here that have huge implications for how we could make our own changes uh, in our own domestic markets um, and, and, get to something that's much more, much more fair. Uh, you know, you, you had mentioned in our preliminary conversation that, uh, the university of Dundee's business school is, I think you said the, the newest business school in the, in the UK. Yes. And, um, if that's true, I'm, I'm also imagining that part of this is a chance to as Dean is to fill in some of the gaps. Cause you know, I think we both know a lot of the business schools do not typically go to, uh, focusing much on on empathy or even mentioning that adam smith also wrote the book on moral sentiments i mean that that part seems to be missing from the executive education as best i can tell in a lot of cases
1: well in a new business school we do have some opportunities that's what we're trying to do we'll see how successful we'll be but basically what we're trying to do is to make sure students are at least exposed to these alternatives so it's it's not about being anti-capitalist, which in some time...
0: No, I understand. Right,
1: so you, you, you will have some people in business schools or professors say, well, capitalism is evil. You know, if to kill capitalism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's really about... You have a lot of our students come from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. used to be also from China, from all over the world. They want to go back home and they want to make money. They want to go back home and build a business. What people need to go back home with are the tools and the understandings that they could build a business that's fair and relatively not equal, but relatively equitable and sustainable in a, in a whole bunch of di- dimensions. So in Dundee, that's what that we're moving in that direction. So it's not that you know, capitalism is evil. It's capitalism can be good. It can be ethical, it can be fair. And, 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 and people going out into the business world need to know how they can, create that fairer firm, that that fair society, and understand that it's profitable, it's competitive.
0: Yeah, no, I've given a lot of speeches in Eastern Europe that, you know, obviously was behind the Iron Curtain and heard all sorts of stories and and funny jokes making the point that, you know, capitalism reformed is is a better vehicle forward than communism and, and probably most shades of, of socialism at least that they had experienced so i uh, i i've got i've got no no issue with that i'm curious to what extent you've seen i mean almost literally democracy in in your studies of companies brought into the workforce i'm, I'm thinking for instance even though there's a lot of flaws in this model including the famous uh, rank and yank method but uh, when I read about Jack Welch, one of the things that does strike me about his tenure at GE is he has something called The Pit at Groden, where he would uh, really spend a lot of face time with people. And I believe there were some opportunities there for kind of anonymous voting on some of the ideas and initiatives that he was putting forward. T- to what extent have you have you seen democracy and, and the voice of uh, Uh, employees rank and file employees really brought into executive consideration i've come across a few stories about nucor perhaps the steel company in alabama uh, trying to bring in worker ideas more but generally speaking i'm not finding a lot of examples out there. i I think it's limited but i I think the trick to
1: make it work is not welcoming worker input Uh, there, there there needs to be the reward piece there as well if there's worker input, well, what's what, the workers are contributing to increasing productivity, let's say, by 10%. So that should not mean that the CEO is going to have her or his income go up by 40% and the worker's income go up by 0%. So that, yes. that, that's, the, that's the other <laughs> piece, right? So if, if, if we're going to talk about stakeholder capitalism, that should mean that if, if people are going to be contributing to the company, they should also be rewarded. And if things go if things get messed up in a the company, there's a there's there's a loss of income, the markets fall temporarily, then as as it used to be with a lot of Japanese firms, then everyone has to bite the bullet. You know, the CEO, the CFO, the managers and the workers. Okay, our pay is going to go down by 10% this year. But everyone's pay goes down by 10% or something like that. So anyway, I, I don't see it's, it's not this type of a change in capitalism. It's not flourishing. And I think part of the reason is that people, activists are not paying much attention to the, the uh, needs of workers. Uh, and yeah. the needs of small, medium sized businesses. People are talking about other things which are important, but they, a lot of people just don't, I don't think they don't seem to get how if they don't involve the needs of working people, their their favored project is gonna is just gonna die, and we saw that almost happened with uh, Trump, and and right now Biden is is down in the polls. A lot of that has to do with the economy or people's perceptions. So we have to get things right. I think having appropriate uh, and robust, which doesn't mean net mathematical necessarily, economic theory that provides an other an alternative worldview is critical to to changing how we do
0: things in modern capitalist societies i uh, i absolutely agree um I, I one last thing you you make a lot of point in the book about work cultures and i and i think that's important and i remember when i started my company in san diego i used to do my shopping both at ralphs And at Trader Joe's, which is a more alternative, newer, uh, you know, food store. And it was always striking. I would go in and and going in in Ralph's and interacting with the employees felt like I was in a morgue. And then I'd go over to Trader Joe's and they were all enjoying each other's company as well as seemingly the customers. Uh, It seems to me that that, uh, as part of going back one last time to Adam Smith and empathy and sympathy, uh, that work culture matters a lot. I know that term can seem fuzzy, but... I think deep down it matters a whole lot. I wonder if you just in your closing remarks here wanted to say something about work culture.
1: Yeah, work culture is fundamentally important. It's in, in a way, it's also about reciprocity. The people have to know there's fairness, but there's a fair exchange between all members of the firm. I have an uh, uh, so I'm doing a presentation, uh, which is called, um, you know, it's all about love in the firm. It's honestly, basically, it's about people sharing and caring. And, and respecting one another, and if you have that in the firm, and it's it's a way of structuring a firm. It could be owned by a private investor, or it could be employee owned. That that makes all the difference because that also, uh, to p- speak crassly, it incentivizes people to be more productive, which pays then for the benefit, the improved benefits people get in their company, in the company for which, which they, where they work.
0: Yeah. So I I want to thank you, Morris, so much for being my guest. This has been episode 106 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, My guest, Morris Altman, he is the author of Worker Satisfaction and Economic Performance, the episode High Wages, the Engine of Economic Growth and Well-Being. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website, uh, the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network and type in the show's name, and you'll see the other 100-plus episodes. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram that's appropriate. In this case, uh, listening to what you've been talking about, Morris, I think I'm going to go back to William James's comment, which is that people want nothing more in life than to be appreciated. And I guess I'm going to add, I'm hoping that appreciation is also monetary and reciprocal in this case. Yes. So until next time, take care, be well. Thank you so much, Morris. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dan. Okay. Thanks all. Bye-bye.